One, two, one, two. Hey, what's going on? Are we on? We're on. So nice to be in your ears. That sounds weird. Don't ever say that again. Okay, I won't. I promise. Yes, this is Mayor. Yes, I am the shorter of the two tall Jews. And yes, this is a new episode. Super happy to be back. And this week we feature the one and only Adar Weinreb. You've seen Adar on Sulha. You've seen Adar with Noam Chomsky and Rudy Rachman. You've seen him host amazing dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians. You've probably seen him on Discord where he has a group of over a thousand people. I think it's a group. I think that's what it's called on Discord. Um, If not, let me know. Don't get mad at me, Discord people. But uh, this is an incredible conversation with Adar, and we recorded it some months back. So similar to last week's disclaimer, we won't be discussing the recent conflict between Israel and Hamas because it hadn't happened yet. But we do discuss a lot of general things that continue to apply. And in the aftermath of such a conflict, lessons that continue to be relevant, and we hope that you can take away you know some actionable items as always we appreciate your support uh please please give us a review on uh apple it really helps the algorithm to recommend to other people share the podcast with your friends we do this for fun in a way we do this to educate we do this to get our passions and our vision out we don't really make any money off of any of this and it's not really our goal to make money but in a way it makes it uh more fun when we do and that's why we set up our store which you've probably seen we have our famous a jew is a jew is a jew shirt we have hats with our logos we have really cool stuff on our website jewishoriginal.com merch and like i said we're not doing this to make money but it's nice when we do and we really really appreciate when you guys buy stuff from our store because it really helps keep this going it really motivates us we're coming up with some new designs and if you want to pitch a design we're happy to review that too uh as always we have our special discount for those that give us a five stars on apple so go ahead and do that take a screenshot and the review and take a screenshot, DM it to us on Two Tall Jews or on This Dangerous History, and we will send you a discount for your next purchase. Without further ado, enjoy the show. It wasn't fulfilling enough. I, I felt like I was still missing something. And then the Gaza war broke out, and I saw two distinct narratives. I saw one narrative from my pro-Israel friend saying, Israel under attack, and then my pro-Palestine friend saying, Gaza under attack. Nobody, nobody said Israel and Gaza under attack. Nobody tried to see the humanity in both people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one side or the other. And I decided to start speaking out on just that, on trying to humanize the other side. Welcome to the Two Tall Jews Show, presented by the On This Day in Jewish History Instagram account and the jewishoriginal.com slash merch website. We are a set of Jews. We happen to be tall and we 
are ready to go. Welcome to the show. As always, our show is brought to you by Best Shot Productions. For all your video marketing solutions, go to bestshotproduction.com and get a quote on your next video project today. On today's show, we are very excited, as always, when we have a new guest, to be on with Adar Weinreb. Coming to us from the north of Israel. Hey guys. <laughs> Adar is a noted interviewer, a debate moderator, and a content creator. Adar is the host of the channel Sulha, formerly known as The Great Debate, and also known as the Standing Up Podcast. He's formerly known as the guy who got a group of people to spell out peace, shalom, with their bodies on the Ayalon Freeway. And according to a couple of friends, he, in a different life, Adar was the king of the Tel Aviv club promoters. Uh, Adar's Sulha is primarily a YouTube channel with nearly 5,000 subscribers as of this recording that puts forth impassioned debate with a diversity of opinions on a wide array of issues. Adar's guests largely tackle issues related to Israel, the Middle East policy, Jewish, Israeli, and Palestinian Arab narratives, combining the history of the events and connecting them to their present day challenges. The channel has also dabbled in highlighting the plight of the Uyghur Muslims in China, the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, the morality of eating meat, and even the effects of psychedelics. Adar, been a long time coming. Welcome to the show. Happy to have you on. Thank you. It's good to be here with you both. So let's get to know each other a bit. Maybe some of our listeners haven't seen your show. Again, if, you, if you've never heard of Adar or Sulha, make sure to check it out on YouTube. He does live streams. He, does, he has amazing conversations. So we want to peel back the onion and, and let our listeners know who is the guy behind the guy. What was your introduction to, to this world of, of moderating debates? How did you get to where you are now? So my, my first entry into uh, the world of peace building was 2014. So I've, I've been in this space for quite some time, not, not consistently, but that was the start. I was a club promoter, as you mentioned. I, I see you did some uh, good research on my past. Um, it wasn't fulfilling enough. I, I felt like I was still missing something. And then the Gaza war broke out and I saw two distinct narratives. I saw one narrative from my pro-Israel friend saying Israel under attack, and then my pro-Palestine friend saying Gaza under attack. Nobody, nobody said Israel and Gaza under attack. Nobody tried to see the humanity in both people. Mm -hmm. um, it was one side or the other. And I decided to start speaking out on just that, on trying to humanize the other side. Now, it's important to mention, I didn't always view it like this. I very much was in the you know, camp of uh, Israel under attack. It was years of transformation that, that actually began in the military. Um, I, I joined the IDF um, in 2008. So six years prior to me, um, to, to me getting into this world. I was an IDF soldier. I didn't know anything about the narrative of the other. I didn't hate Palestinians by any means, but I, I thought they were our enemy and that we have to defend ourselves against them. And there's certainly truth to that narrative. Um, but that's really all I knew about them. And interestingly enough, I was guarding on base and bored, you know, as a soldier who's 19 years old, I was bored out of my mind. I was reading a poster on the wall with different Hamas training techniques. Um, and there was a picture of a Hamas soldier crawling through sand. And we were crawling through sand that very same, same day. And I, I looked at this one soldier and he was just a few years older than me. And I, I kind of saw myself in him and started asking myself, 
If I was born in Gaza, could that be me? Could that be a loved one? Does his family view him as a hero and me as a terrorist? Is that possible? Now, these questions didn't change my belief system overnight. Uh, Deep-rooted teachings can sometimes take a lifetime to change, but they definitely planted a seed in my mind. And that seed was really that um, our enemies and our whole perspective is really dependent on what side of a border we were born on. And if only we can allow people to understand this and, and show more people that we are more alike than we are different, then we could be much farther along in the peace process. Now, that, that was a revelation that really took m- many years to develop in my mind. And 2014 is when I finally felt comfortable enough speaking about it. Mm-hmm. I used what I learned in nightlife, um, which is you could use your social media platforms to spread ideas. In nightlife, I was spreading parties, um, promoting parties, ma- making sure all the, club, the clubs in Tel Aviv were filled with uh, internationals. That was my job as a promoter to bring all the tourists. Um, but I said, why not utilize this social media to spread ideas of unity and ideas of peace? So that's exactly what I did. I started really with some Facebook statuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to some blog posts. And then I, as you mentioned, we, we did a peace sign. Uh, uh, we've done it five years in a row now, where on Yom Kippur, nice. we lie on the highway and spell peace and shalom. We tried doing salam in Arabic as well, but it, it, it's, it's, I don't know Arabic well enough and it's hard for the, the letters are too squiggly for people to like arrange their body yeah. to write it, but we'll, we'll get it in Arabic. Yom one Kippur of these years. will be over by the time you got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll get it. We'll get, get it one of these days. Um, awesome. And, and um, so, yeah, just how did we get here to, to where I am now? Mm-hmm. I, um, I eventually took a step back from, peace building when I left nightlife. I left nightlife to join the high tech space. I worked in blockchain for nearly three years. And when I joined blockchain, it took too much of my mental bandwidth to do that and peace building. I just couldn't find the capacity for both. So I really took a step back from the peace building work. And then 2019, August, 2019, I was at Burning Man having a very introspective moment. And I understood that it's that, that is missing from my life and that when I get back to Israel, I'm going to find a way to make it work. So I got back and I launched the YouTube channel, which started with one-on-one interviews with activists. That was under the name Standing Up. Mm-hmm. Um, then Corona hit and the whole Zoom culture started to develop. And um, it gave me the idea to do weekly live streams uh, between Israelis and Palestinians. And that, was, that has really become our main show, The Great Debate, which has taken off. Um, but in time we expanded beyond the great debate. We, I kind of, we, we have a community on discord, a very active community of over a thousand members, mainly Israelis and Palestinians. And I put it out there that this is a community platform and anyone can create content and contribute. They can host their own shows as long as it's in line with their vision. And that's to reconcile between people in conflict. Mm-hmm. So now we have community members contributing content. So we went with the word sulcha or in English sulcha, which is S. U-L-H-A, mm-hmm. um, which means to reconcile in Arabic. And it's also used in Hebrew under the same meaning. So we, we found it a suitable word because that's exactly what we're all about, reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Um, and here we are today. Interesting. So a, a little bit on the title. So it's still the great debate. Sulha is more referring to 
the community on Discord or you went, you switched it, you shifted from the great debate to Sulha? Yeah, so Sulha is, is our brand. Mm -hmm. Under Sulha, we have the great debate. We have the great debate. We have Standing Up, which is mm -hmm. the original podcast. Um, and now we have a whole bunch of other shows that, that we're doing. Uh, this week, we're launching the Sulha podcast. It's going to be a weekly podcast. Uh, it's going to be four or five people having a weekly conversation about current events in Israel and Palestine. Mm -hmm. um, we, we have another community member who launched a show called In Search of Common Narrative of Israel and Palestine, where he br brings on historians and archaeologists to talk about our, our shared history and, and tr trying to show the connection that we're, we actually originally come from the same people. So there, there's all this community-created um, community content so that's all under the umbrella of Sulha. Love it. You have a very unique style when it comes to debate moderation, non-aggressive yet forceful when appropriate. Was there something you observed in debates that made you want to moderate them in this way? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm not sure if I've even observed that that's, that's my style, but, but I, I, I love getting this feedback because it helps me better understand uh, who I am and what I'm doing. Um, I, I would say when it comes to moderation, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a trained moderator by any means, and I'm constantly getting better. If you look at some of the first episodes, we've been doing these debates for eight months. We have our 39th episode this Thursday. Wow. Um, but I guess maybe 10 months, 10 months now. But um, if you look at the earlier episodes, I was getting more involved and sometimes I would even like debate a little bit if I didn't agree with what, what some of the guests were saying. And then in time, I realized that, you know, I, I need to be more neutral in how I approach it. But so I, I like to think my approach now is really give space to, to the guests to speak and share, mm -hmm. and then ask follow-up questions or, or push back or lead the conversation in the right direction based on, you know, based off if I feel it's just not progressing in the right way. So that, that's kind of my, my approach behind it. I, I didn't, I didn't learn it anywhere per se. I'm just, I, I review, I, I review the moderation. I get feedback from people and I'm constantly working to, to improve it. So any, any feedback, you know, is always appreciated. Oh, right. Let's talk a little bit about the debate you recently moderated between Rudy Rockman and Noam Chomsky. So the debate for the most part, I guess this is my, the following is my sort of rendering, uh, was a very civil back and forth. And it wasn't till the very end that both men began to talk past one another. So I guess my question is twofold. Why do you think it escalated to that level? And what was your biggest takeaway from the discussion overall? Yeah, so that was a tricky one. That, that's one that I'm still I'm still thinking of. Um, I went into it knowing that it may we may have a situation where we're talking past each other because you're taking a 92 year old intellectual scholar, right, and a 26 year old activist. And I'm not by by not calling Rudy. An intellectual, I'm not saying he's not intelligent. It's just a very yeah, different style of approach to, to dialogue, right? Mm -hmm. So I knew that they spoke vastly different languages. I knew this going into it. And 
you know, we, we recognize that it might be a mismatch, but my, you know, my, my thinking behind it was let's expose their audiences to one another because there's, there's such a huge generational gap um, that I thought it could be interesting to expose Rudy's people to Nom and Nom's people to Rudy. Um, and in, 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 in those terms, it was successful, but without a doubt, it could have been more productive. I think Nom is just sticks to his, his go-to, uh, you know, he, he has a few central themes and he just sticks to them very consistently. And it, it's what makes him an effective debater. It's, it's very hard to pull him away out of that area into a place that's not, not so much his comfort zone. Um, and it seems like Rudy made an effort to try to bring the conversation past that, but, but Noam kept bringing it back. So I think that's really what, what the, where a lot of the talking past was, it was Noam sticking to central message, Rudy trying to take it beyond the central message into different areas. And just, they weren't, they weren't able to quite meet each other. Um, in terms of moderation, that that's one of my, that was one of the more difficult moderation jobs I've ever had. Um, one, because our time was limited and I didn't want to get involved too much. Two, on one hand, Rudy is my friend. And on another, Noam is a 92 year old man. Put aside that he's a world renowned uh, intellectual. It's hard to be stern with any 92 year old man. So there was one time during the debate where Noam cut Rudy off and I didn't intervene. And I consider that without a doubt, uh, a, a failure in my moderation. I, I, should have, I should have stopped that from happening. I, I regret not doing so. And I apologize to Rudy for that. Um, at the moment, I just found it very hard to tell a 92 year old man, hey, Noam, you know, wait your turn. It's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty tough. Um, sure. So, so, you know, looking back, um, I, I should have been a little bit more really laid down the law. I should have taken it past the semantic argument way quicker, moved it to solutions way sooner. Um, do you find it difficult that you have to do it over zoom as opposed to like in person? Cause it's hard to talk or like to interject in, in these settings no? or harder. Yeah. I'd say that that's a good point too. It's, it's much harder because it's just, it's way less natural. Like right. there's also, there's like maybe a one second delay from when you're saying something mm -hmm. to when the other person hears you, when two people are speaking simultaneously, you don't, you're not hearing both. Um, body language isn't taken into consideration. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's definitely not an ideal, an ideal setting. Um, but it is, it is what it is. And, you know, we, we need to make it work. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, our podcast is only, we've done everything over zoom. We haven't had a single in-person conversation and we're, you know, I mean, I, yeah, it is what this it is. is the new world. Exactly. This is look on one hand, it allows us for much more flexibility with guests, right? You know, mm -hmm. he lives in Israel mom lives in uh, Arizona. We, you know, we wouldn't have had them in the same room. Mm -hmm. So it gives for more flexibility. The only in-person interview I've given on the show was actually to Rudy for a standing up episode. And you could see that the dynamic of that one is, is so much different than all the other mm -hmm. interviews. Also potentially because we're friends and I felt comfortable giving pushback. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's another identity thing I'm, I'm working on my role as an interviewer. How easy do I want to be on, on the guests? On one hand, I want them to not feel like they're coming into an interview that they're going to get attacked um, or even challenged too greatly because then they might not feel comfortable coming and sharing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to be like a platform where somebody could just share um, opinions that are potentially dangerous or false without pushing back. So I'm trying to find the balance with giving people space mm -hmm. and, um, you know, challenging where it's needed. There's a lot of fine balances to strike in the interview and, and moderation. I'm sure, I'm sure you two are discovering this interview by interview. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, the people are asking, is there going to be a round two? With Rudy, I, and, with Rudy and Noam. Yeah, I wouldn't get hopeful about a round two. Um, I've spoken to Noam since via email. He told me he's not, he's not free for the next few months to even plan or talk about anything. He said, let's talk again in a few months. Um, he's a very, he's a very busy man. I mean, he, yeah. he takes a lot of requests and it, you know, it's hard to book him. And it's not clear that I really, I, I don't know how to personally pitch him on a round two with Rudy, because I feel like the conversation didn't make much progress. I'm still, I, I still, I'm, I'm happy to happen. I, I think, yeah. you know, it's our most viewed video. Um, it brought us a lot of new people to the page. There, there were some interesting insights that both guests shared. So, you know, I'm, I don't, I by no means regret that matchup, but I, I, I'm not quite sure how to convince him. Even if he's willing to come back on the show, I'm not sure how to convince him to do a round two with Rudy. Um, but again, you know, we'll, we'll address that in a few months when, when it's uh, relevant. Right. Well, Rudy for us also the he, we had him on the show in uh, November October so he's been the, our top hit so he oh, he'll, cool. he'll bring he'll bring viewers by himself so if yeah, uh, yeah we still get we still get listens every week so for his episode if you guys want to check that out you can find it you just scroll back so you mentioned that you served in the IDF what unit I was in Golani beautiful so and now this is something that you mentioned a little bit, but I also noticed um, in doing the research about you, an early video that you had on your channel where you spoke about the shift from being a soldier to a peace activist. So can you speak a little, a little bit about this video and this transition? Because so personally, maybe it's the Zionist in me, but I feel strongly that the IDF is a moral army of peace. And mm -hmm. the fighting that the IDF does is to defend peace, right? The logo is the olive tree with the sword. So in my opinion, being an IDF soldier and being a peace fighter are not mutually exclusive. So do you, would you agree with that? Or do you feel like there is a, a dissonance? I think that Israel needs an army to survive. We, we would not be able to live without an army. So I'm not against the army, but I don't think all of our policies and conduct are just or moral. So like most things, it's complex. Mm -hmm. Um, we need to defend ourselves without a doubt. Um, so I, I, I don't take, I take no moral issue with the existence of the IDF. I do think though that our conduct in the West Bank is not what it should be. It doesn't take into consideration the well-being of the Palestinians nearly enough. Our security comes at the expense of Palestinian well-being. It's, it's a collective punishment towards them. And perhaps some level of that might be needed to keep ourselves safe, but 
not to the extent that, that it currently is. And this is when it comes to how soldiers speak to or treat Palestinians, um, the, the way checkpoints are sometimes randomly set up because the soldiers don't have, you know, you, you'll just have your officers say, we're gonna set up a checkpoint today. For us, it's just our day-to-day -day job, but for a Palestinian, they're trying to get to work and an 18 year old is rummaging through their car looking for stuff, you know, think about what that does to the psyche of a Palestinian. Um, home searches at night, um, not, not always on the best intelligence that we receive. You know, imagine living in a neighborhood knowing that a foreign army can just knock on your door and, and search your home and rummage through your things and leave it a mess. That happens. Um, be, be, get, getting arrested and not, not having like a, a civil court, you, you're, you're under a military court. Like th these are all things that like play a huge psychological toll on the Palestinian people. And it, it, it fuels a, the radicalization of the Palestinian people instead of, you know, deploying efforts to aid in their de-radicalization. So again, I, I'm not against the IDF's existence, but I think that it's, it's conduct in the West Bank is um, certainly condemnable. And I, and I think we have a moral duty to, to try to hold it to a higher standard um, than it is. And I, I, I say this as a proud Israeli, not as an Israel hater. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that probably most people in the, in the, in the outside of Israel don't realize that Israelis criticize Israel. Like more than anyone, maybe. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll get to some of the points that you mentioned, uh, but one of the topics that you've brought on your show and that I'm very interested in, and it's sort of a, a different solution to to the situation is the federation plan, the Canton one state solution. So mm -hmm. can you speak a little about, can you speak a little bit about the plan for our listeners, like how, how it works and then yeah, sure. follow-ups. So I, I've never been a big, um, like big on endorsing a specific solution. I, I consider myself solution agnostic because I, I would really support a solution that seems like it would work, whether it's two states, one state, um, federation. So, I'm not coming out and saying the Federation is the plan that I endorse, but out of all the plans I've heard, it's the one it's, I find it to be one of the most interesting and compelling. I, I, you know, I'd like us to get more traction around the Federation solution and our discord uh, community members from our discord created their own Federation solution plan. And they're working on now, you know, bringing it public. Mm -hmm. So essentially a Federation would be turning the entire land into something like, the United States or Switzerland, where you have one union that is split into smaller states. And essentially what this does is it keeps the land whole, which is very important to many Israelis and Palestinians. Mm -hmm. um, many say that the two state solution has always been bound to fail because all too many people don't want the land to be split into. They want it whole. So federation keeps it whole, but it gives local communities autonomy over their own local governance. So Israel is very uh, diverse ethnically. Um, you have, not only do you have many different types of, of Jews, right? Um, Judaism, you can consider it a meta-ethnicity, which under it you have dozens of, of smaller um, ethnic Jewish groups, but non-Jewish populations, you have the, the Druze populations, you have Arabs both, Muslim and Christian, and then many other uh, minority groups. So 
it seems like it would be beneficial to not try to force all these people under one national law and really give them a whole bunch of local autonomy. This, by the way, can potentially also solve problems between the ultra-Orthodox and the secular community in Israel. Um, in Tel Aviv, people want there to be buses on Shabbat. In um, B'nai Barak, they don't. So, let, you know, let each municipality decide, for example. So federation, it kind of, the, the whole idea is keep the land whole, yet give communities local autonomy. That's that's it in a nutshell. Okay. And and just, you know, to, to add to that, we it seems like for such a complex solution as the Israel-Palestine conflict is, we're going to need a very creative solution. And this is one of the more creative ones. So I'm into it. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. So what does the state look like? Would it still be a Jewish state? Are we, would we continue to call it Israel? So that's, that's a good question. And this is really the different federation. There's different federation solutions and they solve this problem differently. Um, one of the prominent federation solutions has been put out by Emmanuel Shachaf. And he says it would be called the Federation of Israel. The entire land would be Israel. And um, um, yeah, but Palestinians, he claims Palestinians would be happy to accept this because they would have full civil rights, um, that they'll have their local autonomy, and it's just their situation will be much better than it is today. So he says they'd be happy to accept such a solution. Uh, some people in, this, in, our dis, in the Sulcha Discord uh, who are Palestinian don't think that Palestinians are willing to give up on their national identity. So they proposed a different solution that would be called the Federation of Israel and Palestine. So you would have both Israel and Palestine existing on the same piece of land. And I think it almost leaves it, a, there's a little bit of subjectivity. So you could consider Yafo to be Palestine if, if you want it to be, but you could consider Ramallah to be Tel Aviv, uh, to be Israel if you want it to be. It's, it's almost like it doesn't matter what, what each individual calls it as long as there's certain systems and structures in place that, that like keep checks and balances in, in a way that make it work. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the people who kind of put this solution together really say that Palestinians are not going to give up on their national identity. They're not going to want a passport that says Israel. Um, it's just, you know, when you're at war with a country for so long and uh, when you're on the losing side of a war for so long, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to then accept that national identity. It, you know, it's, mm -hmm. I, I and again, I'm not Palestinian, so I, it's hard for me to say who's right if it's the people who are saying that they, Palestinians won't give up on their national identity, or maybe what Emmanuel's saying is once they have a better deal, they'll just they'll just do it because you know the, they'd prefer that over nothing. So I, I'm really not sure. Um, what I think we need is is actually both solutions in order to to have like a kind of um, change the collective conversation around solutions. So Emmanuel's solution is way more appealing to Israelis. So let Israelis start talking about the Federation idea and the Federation of Israel and Palestine is going to be way more um, appealing to Palestinians. Let them, let it be part of their collective conversation. And then we just got to find a way to meet in the middle. So I'm okay with different approaches to, to activism in order 
to build a, a mass movement. I don't think we need to decide now exactly what yeah. it will look like, but I do think it's, I think it might be wishful thinking for many Israelis or, or pro, pro-Israel people to think that Palestinians are gonna give up on their Palestinian national identity so, so easily. I'm not, I'm not convinced that's the case. M- many think it is, but I'm not convinced. I think it goes the same way for Jews. You know, how many, I feel like a lot of Jews won't accept that now a lot of these Palestinian Arabs are not going to be equal citizens. Like how many Israeli Jews are, are accepting of the Federation plan? I feel like more Palestinians are accepting the Federation plan. I don't know what the polls look like, but. We, we've done, so, you know, the guys in the, in the Discord, the, their names are, are Rafi Gassel and, and Zahir. They, they've been on the show multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, they did some internal polling. They've been hosting Zoom meetings with different demographics of Israelis and Palestinians. And overwhelmingly, they're finding Palestinians are on board and more right-leaning Israelis are on board. The greatest resistance they're getting are from left-wing Israelis, which happen to be the minority. That's but surprising. They're the ones who want it to be split, a country for us, a country for them. You know, we don't. And that, but it's not hard to see where that comes from because it's the easiest to conceptualize, and the the left is not ideologically driven over having the entire piece of land. They're very okay just having half the land mm-hmm. and, and sharing. So it's not hard to see why the most resistance uh, comes from that that camp. Gotcha. So, in a way, this plan. I know that I've seen some of those episodes. They talk about having a constitution, which is something that Israel doesn't have. Right, Israel uh, bases its laws a lot from the Declaration of Independence and the basic laws. So there's no, there's no coherent document that uh, protects the rights in a, in a way that it does in the United States and other places. So um, in a way, does that also change the fact, like just the nature of the state where it's, it's no longer going to be a Jewish state. It's going to be a, this egalitarian state where there's no Jewish majority because we're not going to have, I mean, the threat of a we're not going to have a Jewish majority in, in the Federation plan. It doesn't exist, right? According to demographics. Um, yeah, that, that, that's unclear. There's, there's debate over that. But there's between, if you take from the river to the sea, including Gaza, it's between 30, it, some say 30%, others say 40% Palestinians. Um, the fastest growing population, though, are... are are Hasidic Jews though. So it's, it's not mm-hmm. clear that, that that's, that there's going to be a demographic shift anytime soon, um, d- due to that, but the, the way it's structured and it needs to be structured like in a very sophisticated manner, because I agree, uh, the reason Emmanuel who has the Federation of Israel plan, the reason he doesn't, in, he doesn't think the other plan is going to work. He says, Israelis will never agree to something that will create a, uh, a, a, uh, demographic shift. Um, you know, it's, it's something that Jew, Jews are terrified of, and it's, it's not hard to understand why that's something we're terrified of. So we, we need to give a very good answer to the, to, uh, the demographic shift. And so I'd say, A, it's not clear that there will be one, but B, the way the Federation is structured is that there's going to be a Jewish Congress, a Palestinian Congress, and then like a mixed Congress. So it will find a way to keep checks and balances in, in a very 
regardless of if there's more of one population and, and less of the other, it doesn't matter. It's going to keep a balance between the two, um, the two majority populations of the nation. Switzerland does something pretty similar. Like they have, they have a rotating prime minister between, um, cause they have like the Swiss French, Swiss Italian and Swiss mm -hmm. German. So they have like a rotating between the three of them. Um, so they, they propose some kind of a, a balance like that. Again, I'm, I'm not fully, and there, there, this comes along with the constitution as well. They're, they're working on some kind of a constitutional document. I'm not so up to date with all the details, but that, that's, that's the gist of it. The idea is that even if there's more of one population, less of another, it does not change. Um, it, it, it's not gonna create a, a, a problematic power dynamic. Gotcha. And just one more question on this, and this is just me personally, I'm curious, um, right? Like not a lot of people remember this, but before Oslo, between the first Intifada and the second Intifada, there was freedom of movement, uh, Israelis and Palestinians between Gaza, between the West Bank, there was no security fence, there, was no there were no checkpoints. And um, to an extent for a while, it was a lot of Israelis and Palestinians actually saw each other. Right. Yeah. That's one of the things that is an issue now where it's like, yes, the security fence is up and a lot of there's no more suicide bombings. And thank God, a lot of Jew, Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs are safe. But now we don't have that human to human contact. Um, right. So how do we avoid a situation where that freedom of access will lead to something, God forbid, like the Second Intifada, where it was one of the darkest periods in Israeli history? And so how, how can we how can the Israeli public regain that confidence? How do we build trust, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I mean, Both sides. Are, is this still in terms of uh, the Federation solution or just in general? How, how do we build trust? Uh, I guess in general, like, let's assume. Yeah, let's just. Let, yeah, in general, how do we how do we build trust? And then and then how do we shift that trust into the Federation solution? OK, yeah. Assuming so it's the I, most viable. Yeah, yeah, th this is perhaps the, the camel in the room when it comes to, you know, a, a lot of a lot of discourse, because this is a question I asked the Federation supporters, if we have freedom of movement, and, and again, you know, any lack of freedom of movement um, punishes the Palestinians more than, than it punishes us. So, mm -hmm. you know, if we want a just situation, we need to find a way for there to, to be freedom of movement. Um, but all it takes is like one, one lone wolf attack to, to take us back years of trust, right? So it's, it's so tricky, so tricky. What I, what I will say is the fact that we've been there in the past, right? We did have a time where, you know, Israelis could even go into Gaza. We, we, we would travel into Gaza freely. So we've been there. So, you know, it's important to people to remember that there was a time where we were traveling freely to all places of the land safely. Um, I think that the second there's serious commitment on both sides and, you know, I'm trying to inspire it from the people, but it might need to come from our leadership. If there's serious commitment from both sides to really, you know, peace building it and the reconciliation process. And uh, we have um, leaders that really inspire their population on a vision of a shared future together um, where they make it clear that violence only harms both of us. You know, any form of violence will just take us in the wrong direction and, you know, will harm our families just as much as the families that are being harmed from the actual uh, violence. 
Um, I, I think we could move past this. I think at the end of the day, most Israelis, most Palestinians don't want to be fighting each other eternally. Like this, this is not, this is not the dream of Israelis and Palestinians. We, we, we want to be living in peace. We just view each other as um, in the way of, of having that peaceful future. It, it, it's very interesting because Palestinians are, are convinced that we'll never have peace because Israelis will never allow us to have peace. That, like convinced that they will die on that hill. Israelis feel the same way about Palestinians, right? Like the, the, both sides feel that it is 100% or 99% the fault of the other why we don't have peace, but we want it so badly. So on one hand, it shows how different we view the world, but the, the important part there is that it shows that both sides actually do want peace. We just need to find a, a deal that's good enough for both parties that it, you know, there's not gonna be a reason for violence. Will there still be some bad actors? Perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we're gonna you know, need to unite against them. We're, we're going to need, again, those strong leaders to not, to not take one act of violence to spread fear among their, you know, the population in order to rally votes, which I think is, is often the case today. Um, we need, you know, we need to, we need to be able to separate from a bad actor to an entire population of people. We often attribute the actions of some to the actions of the whole. Um, so, so I, I really think looking at it in these terms, you know, starting, starting the reconciliation process, having leadership that is really committed to building a shared future. And, and I think because most Israelis and Palestinians really do want to live here peacefully, that, that we could, we could make it work. Cool. I think this is a good transition now, Isaac. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You've obviously had the opportunity to speak to a lot of everyday young Palestinians, mostly living outside of Israel in the territories, Gaza, I assume. What has been your biggest takeaway from listening to their narrative? And has their has your perspective changed from when you started the project through those conversations? Yes. So the conversations are um, very inspiring. Sometimes some are sad. There's one, there's one common theme that I've noticed that once Palestinians have the opportunity to share the vast majority of their sharing is going to be grievances. It's going to be about how difficult their life is. It's their go-to probably 90% of the times. It's how bad living under a military occupation is, how bad life in Gaza is. Um, And it's, it's interesting. There's, there's a, there's a positive and a negative to, to doing this, right? A, A, it just shows something about what the reality is. It's important for Israelis to to understand how difficult it is for them. Um, And it also, it, it, it really does show us that how, how much of their mental space their conditions, you know, take up, like how much it really is a part of their reality and identity. They very strongly identify with uh, their oppression. This is also a negative because I think that the Palestinian people are disempowered because they have a very strong sense of victimhood. I think it's very natural for a population um, 
that is, and again, I, I really think a lot of it comes not so much from material conditions, but from certain power dynamics. So being controlled by another nation's military, I think creates some, takes it some kind of a psychological toll. Because if you, if, if you speak to people from countries that are way poorer than, than the average Palestinian, you know, living in the West Bank, they don't, they're not complaining about their material conditions. They could be very content with what they have. But Palestinians are not content at all, even though some of them are living in nice houses and drive nice cars. It's, it's not just about the, it's not about the material conditions as much as it is a certain power dynamic, which I think is causing them a lot of harm. And I'm, try, I'm trying to relate it to a situation in America. I actually think um, Black America is in a similar situation in terms of, you know, it, in, in many instances, it's easier, to, like Black Americans have better living conditions than white people in Eastern Europe, for example, in, in many instances, okay? So, so material, your material reality doesn't always define how you feel about your conditions. But Black Americans feel like that there's a force and that, like how Palestinians feel about the military, it seems like Black Americans have a similar relationship with the police. They're terrified of them. They view them as oppressive. They don't trust them. Um, they probably don't feel part of greater American society. So all these things are not really talking about the, the material conditions. They're talking about some kind of a power dynamic, which seems to have an innate psychological toll it plays on humans. Um, again, I'm, I'm making this conclusion, basing it off two populations that I've, I've observed with my own two eyes, mm -hmm. uh, Black America and the Palestinian population. Um, so I want us to be, be understanding and empathetic towards Palestinians and how they, you know, why they are this way. At the same time, I think that we also, and I, I'm not sure this is the work of us Jews, but I think we need good, strong Palestinians to urge their Palestinian community to not, um, not get too deep in their despair and not develop too strong a sense of victimhood because it's disempowering to them, yep. right? The, the, the idea that Palestinians don't feel like they have any control over their destiny makes them not have any control over their destiny. And if we look through history, there are a lot of oppressed and disenfranchised people that elevated themselves through collective action. Black America is one of them. You know, you had uh, the, the civil rights movement that, that was led by Martin Luther King. That was people who did not have equal rights, and built Jews a coalition of... Huh? Jews in America too. And uh, that, that's what I was say. I mean, Jews may, may be even to a larger extent that we really rose from the ashes after hundreds of years of persecution in, uh, in Europe mm -hmm. and having half of our population murdered in the Holocaust to being overrepresented in industries across the world, across the board, to, to the point where that's, that's the hate against us is today that we have too much power, right? So how do we go from being oppressed for hundreds of years to having so much power? Part of it was really not, not having despair. It was saying, we are in control of our destiny and we're going to work to elevate ourselves. I think, I think that there's a great lesson to be learned um, from, from Jews in our history. Other oppressed populations can certainly 
learn something from us because we we succeeded big time are those conversations had in your in your discord where it's like you know i'm jewish my entire grandparents one of my grandparents side completely wiped out in the holocaust you know we had nothing and we you know and look at where we are now is, is that sort of communicated as a way to inspire them or or would they hear that and be like i don't want to hear that like you don't know what i'm going through now it's it's tricky it's tricky uh, uh, uh. It's a good question because mo most, most Palestinians, you need to have a relationship with them before they're going to be open to hearing that. Mm -hmm. um, there needs to be trust first. Like you can't start with that conversation. Right. I, I, and anybody here who wants to, you know, be involved in the reconciliation process, it's as easy as, you know, finding a Facebook friend or an Instagram friend and, and you know, engaging in dialogue, trying to, you know, learn from them and having them learn from you. And the best way to do it is to start by listening, to ask them about themselves and really let them share. Um, and that's the single best way. And, and you, you might not agree with all aspects of their narrative, but before you build trust, don't, don't try to challenge their narrative, accept what right. they're saying. And then from there, you know, once trust is built, it's easier to have the more difficult conversations. Um, but I'm not shy about what I just said. Um, you know, I, I do want, I do think it's important. I think there's lessons to be learned from our history. It's just, you know, we, we all too often hear somebody say, um, like they could say something that's hurtful or even hateful. And then you call them out on it. They say, but it's the truth, mm -hmm. but truth isn't enough. Like if, if you're sharing a truth that the person you're sharing that truth can't hear you, well, then it's like, it doesn't matter to say it. So I, I don't care if something's true. I care if it's true. And if the person you're speaking that truth to is able to hear what you're saying. So this is a question, you know, any communicator needs to ask themselves, is it true? And can this truth be heard? So th that's really how we need to, how we need to approach it. So yeah, we are having these conversations in discord. Um, but this is already a, a group of Israelis and Palestinians who have done a lot of work with each other. Um, it's Palestinians that are willing to engage. You have a whole bunch that aren't currently aren't willing to engage with Israelis. So it's not, you know, we have a very special crew there. And the goal is for our Palestinians there to inspire their communities to, to A, be more involved in a peace building process, to meet Israeli friends, um, and also to be empowered to, to not to not sulk in their victimhood, you know, day after day. Cause again, on one hand, we need to be empathetic towards why they are like that, but find a way to yeah. guide them to, towards empowerment. Sure. Yeah. Cool. So we saw that you recently went full-time with Solha. Congratulations. Uh, you know, it's Thank always you. nice to see a fellow Jewish content creator going all in on on the work that they're doing. Um, so what's the what's the big picture plan for Soha? Where do you see the project going in the next five years, five to 10 years? Next five to 10 years. So to continue to grow, you know, our channel and our Discord community. Um, I am doing this full time, but I don't know how many months I could do this full time before I need to start working. Mm. Um, Cause content takes a long time before you're making money we're making we're already making a few hundred dollars a month but can't live off a few hundred dollars a month let's be real so yeah um for now i'm all in on this i might need to go back to some part-time work eventually maybe now's a 
good time to shout out my Patreon. If anybody wants, you can support Sulchan on Patreon. Please do. Hopefully, there'll, there'll be a link in the description. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I, I want us to really grow and be able to increase our impact. So I, I'll share two messages I got recently. An Israeli boy sent me uh, an email said, hi, my name is, I won't say his name, but hi, my name is this. Um, I need to tell you, I recently discovered your channel. And since discovering it, I've been watching every episode and it's caused me to rearrange how I understand the conflict. Mm. A Palestinian girl just reached out to me, said, thanks for the content you do. Up until recently, I thought Zionists were inherently bad people. I didn't think there's such a thing as a good Zionist. I thought it's a, like just a form of hate and racism. Now I understand that that's not the case. So we are having an impact on people. This is just two instances. Um, I'm sure there's many more because I'm, I'm guessing not every single person is, is going to reach out, but no. how can we scale this and really have a shift in in the, you know, the, the collective consciousness of the Israel and Palestinian population, or even in the Jewish diaspora and, and world global Muslim population, right? It's not, it's not exclusive to this. We're using the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as uh, a, a proof of concept, essentially, right? Because this is a conflict that's close to home, close to heart. But our vision for the future is to expand to other conflicts around the world because there's a lot of division in this world. And, you know, we want to prove a workable and scalable model for reconciliation between people in conflict. So Israel and Palestine will remain to be our main focus, but we do want to try to do things to connect the left-right divide in the United States, um, maybe do some healing between uh, white America and black America, we started touching on Armenia, Azerbaijan. There's India, Pakistan. So there's a lot of conflicts. We, we don't want to get, you know, we're going we're gonna to grow responsibly. We're not going to take on too much right now. It all depends on um, how many community member volunteers we have, or hopefully in the future we'll have full-time um, employees. Um, but but that's, you know, that's, that's where that's kind of our, our goal for the future. And maybe I'm getting over ambitious, but you know, let's put one goal that's pie in the sky. Um, one is that our, our federation solution is the solution implemented, right? Like that means we actually produce something that will bring um, peace to the land. Um, and two, I'd like to host uh, the presidential, the, the U S presidential debate in 2032. Nice. Um, Prove, uh, you know, I, I, I have ten, 11 years to prove that there's a better way to moderate debates than what CNN and MSNBC and Fox 100%. News are doing. So 11 years that, you know, we can maybe pull that off. Yeah. I always thought sort of a caveat. I always thought it'd be really interesting if they had Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow co-moderate the debate. I feel like that would like either it would over enhance the theatrics and sort of compound the problems that you would want to eradicate with mm. debate moderation or it would like take it to the next level that it needed but i always thought that would be really interesting yeah i, I actually think that's a great idea um good you luck convincing them. You, <laughs> you're gonna moderate them while they moderate yeah exactly the you moderate the moderators <laughs> yeah. I th you know that, that that's something i would 
you know, I'm, I'm trying not to, I'm trying to stay focused, but I, I would like to do not only moderation, but also mediation in the future. So if there's like a, I might also do this privately, like I might take a mediation course and, and start doing it as like a, a practice, like, you know, yeah. people who, who need maybe couples who need mediation, business partners. Um, but I could also, it, it could be cool. Let's say there's like a public dispute between like influencers. Come on the show. Let's talk about, yeah. it, you know, yeah. so that, that's an angle I'd like to take in. I kind of break it up that some of the, some of the debates that we do, I don't think, I know the conversations won't be productive, but I know that they're going to do well in terms of views. And I'm okay with this trade-off as long as it's not the majority because growing the channel, then it brings people in, exposes them to our other content that's productive conversations. So once in a while, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do a debate that really is, is more for the entertainment value than it is for the reconciliation. And not surprisingly, those are the ones that, that get the most views, but right. it, it helps us grow. And ultimately it brings more people into, into our greater mission of reconciliation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well. <laughs> That's why you're, you guys co-host together. Yeah, exactly. Finishing each other's sentences. Uh, sentences. If you, <laughs> if you had a gigantic billboard that you could put anywhere where millions or billions of people could see and have access to it, what would it say and why? So there's two things come to mind uh, instantly. One is a more selfish one that says, uh, follow Sulcha on YouTube. Um, the second would maybe be, I think one of my favorite slogans that I've kind of been, that summarizes, you know, my, my approach, our approach to um, conflict resolution and it's the path to peace is paved through the humanization of the other um, and yeah so so I, I you know if there's the there's the my own self-interest would put the sulka billboard but the, the yeah. truly like altruistic one would be um, that quote that's the quote like on my twitter and instagram and stuff like that because it it really if there's one way to summarize what we're doing in a sentence it's it's that Yep. So do you have any questions for us? When, when are we going to come on the show? Um, first of all, yeah. If Do you have any like uh, public disputes between you two that you'd like to work out? <laughs> well, we do. We have one question coming up next that we could, I think it would be interesting to have on your show. Um, but before that, do you have any questions for us? Um, how, how tall are you both? Uh I mean, we is that talk- a secret? No, we can we can say it and then it's cut like, it from the from the. We're episode. gonna we're gonna have to bleep it out, but uh, yeah. Okay, I'm, fine. No, yeah, I'm six one, and I'm six nine. It's just like a running joke that we haven't uh, publicly yeah, shared. We don't really know it. Yeah, that's fine. No, I won't. I won't tell anybody. And how tall are you? Five eleven. Oh, okay. okay. There you go. Yeah. We forgot to ask, but usually we ask uh, how tall you are so we can see if it's still just the too tall Jew show. Mm. Right. I, I mean, I guess I'm above average height, but I'm like yeah. not, I'm not considered tall, you know? Yeah. Uh, in some countries, you're pretty tall. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, th- I think average height in, in Israel is like 5'9. But if yeah, I were to go to, to like, if I'd go to Denmark, then it's like, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm below average height. It's like six one there or something. Right. So, yeah. so this next question, um, I mean, it would be interesting to have a, a debate about it on your show. If you can find somebody yeah. that's against the idea, but Isaac, go ahead. So, yeah. So this question um, concerns itself with the definition of anti-Semitism. 
and what and, and whether or not we should be used more importantly whether or not we should continue to use the word anti-Semitism when describing Jew hatred, or should we replace it with a word that's more accurate, such as anti-Jewish racism or Judeophobia, or Jewish, just plainly Jewish discrimination? Because I'm sure as you know, the term anti-Semitism is in itself anti-Semitic and, it's or and it holds anti-Semitic origins. And so do you believe that we should move away from the sort of post 19 sort of the 19th century post enlightenment racial pseudoscience that Wilhelm Marr um, was using when he created and coined the term? Or do you believe that it's so pervasive and widespread now that we should just be we should be fighting anti Semitism collectively, not fighting over what to call it? Is is that only a suggestion for the debate, or is that also a question? Uh, that's a question for you now. And, okay. Yeah. Our stance would be change the word. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have an interesting takes on on words. Sometimes I come off as like a stickler when it comes to terminology, and that's because I, I like us to be able to effectively communicate. Um, I, but I think with that, we also need to recognize that. It's like, it's an issue of pick, picking your battle. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm not against changing the word. Um, it does have racist origins and it's confusing to people. You, you often hear such like a disingenuous pivot. They say, yeah. but how can I be anti-Semitic? I'm, I'm, I'm a Semitic person myself. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, that's it's, it's actually, the logical fallacy is, um, association fallacy. I, I think that's what it's called. It's when you, you're using Semitic in two different ways. So when you say anti-Semitic, you're meaning Jew hate. And for you to say I'm Semitic, you're not meaning a Jew. Mm -hmm. So it's two, two meanings for the same word. Yeah. So so that's essentially what they're doing. So changing it would, would stop people from doing that, right? Just call it Jew, Jew hatred or Jew, Judeophobia. I, I think that's cool. Um, I don't think that it having racist origins is necessarily needs to be a reason to change it. I, I think that, you know, it's like th things can change, you know, like that, that's often actually something used against the Palestinians that uh, Palestinian comes from Plishtim and Plishtim means invader, but it's like, cool, you know, don't expect Palestinians Palestinian to change what they Rome. call themselves. Right. Yeah, it's like, but it's like, you know, th meanings can change. Um, what I would say more about, about the term is that I'm concerned we're, we're broadening the definition to a place where it might lose its, the weight it currently carries. And I think we've seen something happen with the term racism. Racism is obviously bad. It's condemnable, mm -hmm. it's detestable, but there's all these new definitions, you know, one of them being all white people are racist. So like, how bad could it actually be if all white people are racist? So I actually think we're, <laughs> I, I, th I think we're doing a service to, to racists by just like overusing it across the board. And I'm seeing some signs of this in, with the term anti-Semitism that, like you'll you'll hear BDS is anti-Semitic and anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic, and I think that there's anti-Semitism in BDS, 
And I think there's anti-Semitism in anti-Zionism, but I don't think it's that simple because most people, when they say Zionist, they don't mean the Jewish right to self-determination. They mean Jewish supremacy. Like that we have a definition problem when it comes to Zionism because anti-Zionists have a completely different definition. And for somebody to be against Jewish supremacy doesn't make them an anti-Semite. So when, when they take an anti-Zionist stance, they're not actually saying, again, I'm not speaking for all anti-Zionists because some actually want to dismantle Israel, but a lot of them are just saying they refuse to acknowledge Israel for what it is today. Um, and that's not inherently anti-Semitic. And in addition to that, it's not hard to understand why Palestinians would be anti-Zionist because they view as Zionism has been you know, a, a political movement that has caused them immense harm for the past hundred years. So if we're just gonna, it, it does, Two, two things, two things that, that are bad. One, it's not productive if you're just going to call a Palestinian anti-Semitic because they take an anti-Zionist stance, right? We like, it's just, that's not good for dialogue. We, we should understand where they're coming from, why they take that stance. How can we reconcile that position? You know, hurling an accusation of uh, anti-Semitism is not, not good, not good dialogue. And, and, in addition to that, there's also the dilution of the term, which, you know, as we've seen with racism, I'm worried people will stop taking accusations of anti-Semitism seriously if we make it include so many other things like critis certain criticisms of Israel. So I want us to be very, very careful whether we change the definition or not. Um, I, I would support changing the definition. Um, and I even think that there's like, all you need is a few Jewish activists to get behind it, that it could actually catch on. You know, we, we do have a, a small enough community that we could actually make that shift. So I'd, I'd even be happy to, to help if, if we decide we're going to go for it. Um, but, it, I, you know, I just want to add that we I want us to be careful with how we're with how widely we, we define anti-Semitism, because anti-Semitism is a problem. And the last thing we want to do is to you know, dilute the, 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 the meaning and impact that term has. Yes. One last thing, one last thing, if we're already going to talk about terms and definitions, to me, I'm not sure why we need the term Zionist in today's world. I think this is one that gets in the way of productive conversation, because the, the two people fighting have such a vastly different definition of, of Zionism. One views it as Jewish right to self-determination. The other views it as Jewish supremacy. It's true that Jews should be the ones getting to define Zionism, but why do we need a term for Jewish self-determination? Why can't you just say Jewish self-determination, right? It's like a, a much better approach is, let's say somebody says, oh, I have an issue with Zionism. It's like, I hear you. I understand your concern. I believe Israel has the right to exist. You get what I'm saying? Like, why fight them? Why meet them on that term Zionism and have a battle over what it means? Let's take it to what it actually means. Let, let, let's take it to like an actual practical place. Israel has a right to exist. We, you know, regardless of, all, you know, any criticism you have of Israel, we're not in the habit of dismantling countries because of problems they may have. So, let you know, let's just ground this conversation in reality instead of some more like abstract and philosophical conversation of what Zionism means. Mm -hmm. I'm not, it's not, it's not a battle I'm going to pick because I think Zionism is too important to too many people that they're not going to give up on that term.
but if if I could choose, I would say we could get rid of that term and our conversations would be more productive for it. Cool. So um, we're running a little time with time. So we did have some segments that we wanted to do with you. Uh, I think we're just going to cut them and uh, we'll do we'll do half of them. Uh, but this first one is just a couple of rapid fire for our listeners. Maybe some of them haven't been to Israel in a while because of the virus, or maybe they've never been to Israel. But as a veteran Israeli, what is your favorite destination in Israel that you would recommend people visit? So Tel Aviv is my favorite city, not only in Israel, but maybe in the world. So definitely spend some time in Tel Aviv, but probably uh, post in a post-COVID world because cities just don't have the same... Uh, mm-hmm same impact and then i mean there's so many places like if you come to israel you need to do tel aviv you need to do jerusalem you need to go to the dead sea slash the negev because it's a desert but it looks like the moon and then you got to go up north which is where i live now which i think is the most beautiful place in israel it's lush green mountains everywhere and it's most beautiful in the fall and spring not in the summer um unlike um, many places in the world in the summer, it's not green. It actually gets yellow because it's like a dry season. So gotcha. spring and fall. What's your least favorite destination in Israel? Where should people avoid? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of cities that just aren't interesting. <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, I, I don't want to single any one of them out, but, um, That's fine. we'll just say it for you. The central <laughs> bus station in Southern Tel Aviv, if you can, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I like I actually like like cultural experiences. So I'll explore there just just for the fun of it. But I'm yeah. I'm quite different. But yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, de- definitely not the the first place I tell somebody to go visit. The Central bus station in, in Tel Aviv. Yeah, it's a fun place. Sure. Um, so a pro tip for ever, what's a pro tip for somebody that's visiting Israel for the first time? Just something to keep in mind so that they don't look too much like a tourist. So Israeli culture. And perhaps this is Middle Eastern culture. It's aggressive, but it's not coming from like a place of hate. It's coming from a place of love. It's uh, you just feel comfortable enough with uh, somebody you don't know that you could like yell at them. But the same person who's like that might yell at you will also invite you over for Shabbat dinner. Mm-hmm. So there's like a certain aggressiveness to interactions, but it's these same two people will take you in and then give you a place to sleep, even if they have no idea like who you are and, and what you're about. So don't, don't let like, and, and again, this is dependent what country you're coming from. If you're coming from Europe or America, you might find it to be aggressive. If you come from other countries that have a little bit more of that, you know, aggressive nature, then you won't notice it at all, but don't let that, you know, don't be too surprised of it. And don't, don't um, let, take let it, it uh, yeah. Don't take it personally. Don't let it demoralize you. You know, it's, there's, there's a beauty to it at the end of the day, because, is how how warm people actually are here right i think uh natan levy had the same answer we just i don't know if you know natan mm. the uh the ufc fighter we had him on last week oh cool uh, i'm actually um that, that's like my guilty pleasure uh UFC? MMA. but yeah UFC I, I don't talk about it much because i think it's it's bad for the world that <laughs> we're consuming we're consumption you know there's like the saying you you are what you eat but yeah. it's really you become what you consume and if you consume people fighting it like makes you more violent I, but I, uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 get I, what yeah. I religiously watch UFC, you know, <laughs> I get where you're coming from, but you all notice that almost not every time, but for a lot of times when the fight is over, they'll shake hands, they'll hug. Like it's, it's, it's coming from a place of sport. Like it's not very rarely yeah, do they have but, things against each other. 
Yeah, but, but I know. But like, imagine if your role model is yeah. like, you know, it be, the, right. the second your role model becomes like somebody whose job it is to beat the shit out of people, like, you know. <laughs> right, coming and, from and, and there's like to reconciliation, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I don't talk much about that guilty pleasure of mine. But yeah, I, 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 li I like it. I'm, I'm a fan. <laughs> there's actually another Israeli fighter, um, I, Aviv something. Maybe he's in Bellator, but yeah, Aviv Gozali. He's like a jujitsu master. He's broken records. He like none of his fights made it past the first round. He just runs. He runs at the guy and submits them within seconds. He's he's even pulled off some moves that have never been done. So um, I'm sure he's next. I'm looking out for that guy too. Yeah. Just one more segment that I wanted to do because I'm curious what your. I don't know if you prepared for this, but uh, if you have something, maybe uh, I just think it's fun asking Israelis this. For what's like a, a random Hebrew word of note that nobody knows that people should know? So for me, I'll just do it quickly. Um, I'm reading a book called uh, Tel Aviv: The Mythology of the City. It's basically breaking down the different myths of the city historically, from when it was founded up until today. And uh, he's talking about Dizengoff and how in the 50s and the 60s it was like the place to be. I think now it has a comeback, but it was literally the place to be. It had the cafes, the neon lights. It was like, it was, they were calling it the, the Wall Street, not the Wall Street, the, the Fifth Avenue of Tel Aviv. Mm. And it created a verb, lehiz dangef, to, to, to Dizengoff, which would literally mean sitting, at, sitting in Dizengoff, sitting in a cafe shop and just looking at girls. So I thought that was funny. <laughs> that's, and, yeah. that's an awesome word. And, it, you know, it says something about the Hebrew language that you can take any word. It, we do this in Hebrew, we take any word and turn it into a verb. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they, we, we do it all the time in like the army and stuff. Um, right. Yeah. Liz Dangef. Great word. So, yeah, the word that I'll say is moz. Okay. So for those who don't know, Hebrew is a, is a language that was uh, revived. It's the only language that actually was revived from being almost dead. Um, as a spoken language. As a spoken language, right. Mm -hmm. I actually recently interviewed Gilad Zuckerman, who's in Israel's most notable linguist, who wrote a book about revivalistics. And he actually doesn't he call it Hebrew. He calls it Israeli mm -hmm. because he says it's so different from ancient Hebrew that it should have a new name. It's just as much European, has European influence as it does um, ancient Hebrew influence. Um, he does consider it a revived language, but he says it should go under an, a new name. Um, so Eliezer Ben Yehuda is the father of uh, modern Hebrew. He created a lot of, he, he really recreated Hebrew. And what he needed to do was find words for a lot of things that the Bible didn't have words for. So Moz is actually the word for banana. It just didn't catch. It didn't catch on. Um, so in Hebrew, you say banana. banana. Most Israelis don't know what Moz is even. So if you say Moz to an average Israeli, I'm guessing more than half will have no idea what you're saying. <laughs> but that's what Eliezer Ben Yehuda chose for um, for banana. I like that. Yeah. Isaac, did you prepare anything? Or? Uh, no, because I don't. I'm not familiar with Hebrew. So mm. you got to give Isaac the uh, the. In keeping with. Yeah, the yeah. Achad Ha'am treatment, the not not a state for Jews, but a Jew, uh, not a, sorry, not a Jewish state, but a, a state that's Jewish. Right. Uh, right. He said, you got to learn Hebrew, you got to learn about Jewish culture. And that's, that's what, that's what will make us Jewish. So are we um, doing the, the food segment? Yeah. Do you have something? Let's do it. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I, I so did. This is uh, Bobby's delight. 
We're, uh, we have a Jewish food always made by Bobby. And uh, Adar, why don't you go first? Give us sure. what you got. So I brought a rugala. Mm. Right. It might be called, I don't know, maybe it's rugala in other countries, but rugala. And I, I got this at the train station, so I don't know how good this one's going to be. But, <laughs> but, you know, let's let's see. Yeah. Are we tasting now? Taste yeah. it and give us yeah. a rating. We haven't done this segment in a while, so only only the real ones know. Yeah. Probably the light. Look, it's a train station. <laughs> um, definitely which, edible. Naria, which train station? Yeah, Naria, yeah, exactly. If you, there's a place in Jerusalem called Marzipan, Marzipan. Mm-hmm. They're not known for their marzipan. I'm not even sure that they sell marzipan there, but they have the best rugelach that I've ever had. Solid, like nine nine point five. Nice. This is like a six point five. So just nice. you know, okay. there's yeah. there's a a broad spectrum of how these things are. All right, Isaac, go ahead. Yeah, so I have Bubby's favorite fair trade organic cherry almond dark chocolate. Mm. Mm. And yeah, for all those dark Try. chocolate lovers. Non-GMO. Bubby cares about that. <laughs> what do you give it? Uh, four <laughs> or five. Not Bubby's best. And, uh, <laughs> Not uh. Bubby's best. Well, I, have a, I have a classic. This week, You'll find this at every Shabbat, like Seudat Shlishit. Uh, every single, you'll have a little bowl with these crackers. The, the, it literally goes cracker crisps. Sour cream and onion, and the the brand I thought was great. It was just it's called Bagel Bagel. And is that an Israeli company? No way. This is for sure from like the Five Towns uh, or something in New York, New Jersey. Because I think we see those in uh in the supermarkets here. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's actually really good. It has a lot of garlic, so yeah, those, yeah. Give it like an eight. Well, Adar, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, thank you for hanging out with us, talking to us. Yeah. Um, we, we, you know, we look forward to having you back on and maybe coming on your show. So, you know, really the, the, the nature of what we're doing in Sulcha is very collaborative. And, um, you know, I'd like to see this, um, you know, we just met now, but I'd like to see this as the first of many things that we can potentially do together. Yeah. Um, I think there's a problem in many activist and peacemaking space. I mean, all industries across the world that the the ego often dictates, you know, how we make decisions. And if there's one place where there shouldn't be competition, rather healthy collaboration, it should be people who are actually trying to make the world a better place. So we need to put our egos aside and really, you know, work with as many people as possible, elevate those around us. you know, at the end of the day, we're doing this, if we're doing this for the right reason, then, then we need to work to elevate those, those around us as well. So, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to, to have you two on the show and even explore other potential collaborations that we could, you know, potentially do together. And anybody watching this, you know, just, just know that the door is wide open. Um, You have an idea for some content you want to contribute in any way possible, even in turn, you know, just reach out to me, um, you know, and, and let, let's make it work. It's this sulcha is by no means about me as an individual. I am just one part of it. Mm-hmm. It's it's a community project that we're working on together. And uh, you know, thank you both so much for for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely.